What is tragedy and how do we see it not only in the arts but also in the Bible? How does tragedy help us see what it is to live as sinners in a fallen world? What's the difference between optimism and hope? And how is a tragic view of life actually part of the good news? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Dr. Giles Waller. Giles is a research associate at the Divinity Faculty of the University of Cambridge and a member of the Cambridge Interfaith Programme. His forthcoming book is entitled Tragic Theology, Drama, the Cross and the Literary Luther. And our title today is What's the Relationship Between Theology and Tragedy? Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Giles Waller, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you very much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Giles, tell us about your work in the Divinity Faculty at Cambridge University, your work with the Cambridge Interfaith Programme, and give us a sense of how you've reached this particular part of your career. So it all started really in Cambridge. I studied theology here as an undergraduate, which, as I suppose many programmes are, but especially so in Cambridge, it was a very interdisciplinary degree. So it was really the study of theology through and alongside history, social anthropology, philosophy, literature, visual arts, each of them seen as particular ways of encountering religious experience, um, religious lives and, and theological questions. And I suppose the sort of biggest influence for me was in my very first term, I found myself taking a paper called slightly ambitiously, The 19th Century Background to Modern Theology. And one of the fascinating things about this paper was how seriously it took literature as a form of theological thinking in its own right. So not just as a sort of nice illustration of theological ideas, but actually as theology. So I found in my first term working on questions of evil, suffering and of theodicy, the key primary texts were Dostoevsky's Brothers Kalamazov, Germania Hopkins' Wreck of the Deutschland, um, George Eliot's Middlemarch, and Tennyson's poem In Memoriam. So right from the beginning, my study of theology was, was done through engaging with these imaginative literary forms and thinking about what it is that literature um, and other forms of art give us that is, that is particular and, in a sense, kind of irreducible and how that works theologically. I returned then to Cambridge for my PhD and ended up working with David Ford. And I went on to work with David as a research associate in his final year before he retired I had the great joy of working with David on his Bampton lectures on John's Gospel, where I I think I was his sort of official or unofficial or semi-official tragedy consultant. But David, of course, founded the Cambridge Interfaith Programme and introduced me, of course, many others, to the practice of scriptural reasoning. So this is a practice that involves primarily Jews, Muslims and Christians getting together in small groups to read one another's sacred texts. And I found this to be the most profound um, and enriching form really of interfaith, um, interreligious dialogue that I'd yet encountered and really developed quite a passion for it. And that's also been, I think, quite an influence on me, really, this hermeneutical practice of making sense of and reasoning together from short passages of scripture, often discussing a single word at great length for, for as much as an hour or more. And that, I think, really resonated with what I suppose were probably quite interdisciplinary interests that I already developed in theology and literature. So this kind of return to scripture, but in a kind of interfaith dialogue um, context as a way of, in a sense, making strange something that was that was quite familiar. And I found a way that that then opened up new depths in texts, new ways of thinking about text in relation to forms of life, 
And the way that texts, and these particularly these profound texts of our scriptures, seem both to resist our attempts readily to make sense of them, but all the while are drawing us ever deeper under the surface of those texts. And all of this done in dialogue with, with religious others was something that's been a really big influence on me and something I, I continue to do in, in the Cambridge Interfaith Programme. You spoke about your scriptural reasoning uh, sessions often focusing on one word. We're looking at one word today in our conversation. That word is tragedy. We're going to explore that in a number of ways, the way that you've thought and uh, written about that over the years. Let's go back to first principles. Introduce the word tragedy for us. Uh, What does it mean? What does it refer to? And, and, And sort of what are the different places where it's used? I mean, that is an enormous question in which I actually have an entire well, several shelves of books behind me that address that question. So I'll try, I'll try and give you a, a concise answer. I suppose the, the simplest way to start is historically at the beginning, that tragedy is a form that emerges in Athens, in Greece, in the 6th to 5th centuries BC, um, with the three great dramatic poets, um, Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides. And then various forms of tragedy continue over the next 2000 years, really, with all sorts of fascinating receptions and adaptations of classical tragedy, often in explicitly Christian forms. And then with the confluence of the Renaissance and the Reformation, we see a great flourishing of tragedy with, of course, Shakespeare and others. And I think in some ways, we're now only really emerging from a kind of era in the study of tragedy that sees these kind of tent poles, as it were, of Athens and Shakespeare's London as the, the only places where tragedy that counts is made. And then, of course, tragedy develops through neoclassical forms. And so we get particularly theologically minded playwrights like the French Jansenist uh, Jean Racine, very influential through romantic forms. So poets like Hölderlin and Schiller, and then Chekhov and Ibsen um, into more recent writers. And a kind of fascinating variety of forms that you get in sort of self-consciously named or conceived tragic works in, in 20th and 21st centuries from writers like Samuel Beckett or Sarah Kane or Wallace Inca. And that's just considering drama. But of course, you know, we can think of novels as a kind of new inheritance from a kind of tragic dramatic route. And other modes of tragedy like opera and of course film and painting too. So you might think of um, painters like Francis Bacon or Mark Rothko or Anson Kiefer as kind of self-consciously tragic painters. And then alongside all of this is a very intense philosophical debate about the nature of tragedy and the tragic that I think is particularly lively from the Romantic period onwards. So that, in a sense, kind of covers the the, the aesthetic form of tragedy. But I think it's also important to recognise that tragedy is now perhaps most commonly encountered as a word in, in sort of news headlines, and as a way of kind of referring to everyday events. And there's a very interesting debate about the legitimacy of that um, or not from a kind of aesthetic perspective. But I think really where I'd I'd want to to go with that is to say that tragic events, we say, in in, in everyday life and tragedy as an art form is always that the two are always kind of mutually informing one another, as it were. So that tragedy, it's important to see it not, I think, simply as a sort of closed off aesthetic form so that tragedy is something that can only be applied to a, a particular play. But when we use this in everyday life, we're kind of elevating the suffering that we're talking about by giving it this title that is, you know, the most elevated and prestigious art form traditionally. So there's a, there's a sense of kind of giving a shape and a narrative to suffering that we name as tragic. So I think that, that there's a kind of interesting two-way process. I think the other thing I'd want to say about tragedies, 
is to think of it as as a form of reflection, that it is something which is aesthetic. And this, thinking theologically, uh, is why, for example, St. Augustine objects to it. You know, he says in Confessions that, that he greatly enjoyed watching tragedies and that the more the more miserable he was made to feel by them, the, the, the happier that made him. Right? And this is a fundamental perversity. And this gets at a question that's been around since Plato, which, which is this perennial question of why, why does tragedy give pleasure? So that then leads to a whole um, set of traditions of thinking about what it is that tragedy is doing, not only aesthetically, but also ethically and morally, and, and I want to say theologically, um, in presenting suffering to us in this form. So sometimes tragedy is thought of as being, in a sense, perhaps a kind of education. You know, it's a way of experiencing suffering without having to fully experience it, right? It's not happening to us. And in fact, of course, it's not happening to the people who are acting it out either. So there's a, a sort of a way of removing it from a kind of immediate experience. But I think even more important than that are the, are the kind of ritual origins of tragedy. You know, the, the, in the Athenian theatre, this is part of um, a religious festival. And I think even in modern theatrical productions, while they might not be self-consciously religious, there's still very much a set of conventions and, and a form that has to be observed that's a crucial part of what it is to, to watch tragedy. So I, I'd, I'd want to kind of emphasise an idea of tragedy as a sort of form, as, as, as much as simply a kind of load of grim and depressing content. And finally, just to kind of wrap up on this question of what tragedy is, I'd say that tragedy is very, very interestingly resistant to theory. The great writer on tragedy, who um, supervised part of my doctoral study, actually, Adrian Poole, writes that tragedy is a form that simultaneously demands and resists explanation. Um, and that, I think, has made it a great source of fascination to theorists and to philosophers. But I think that what's very interesting is the way that it always seems to elude the grasp of any one particular theory. You worked with Kevin Taylor on a book called Christian Theology and Tragedy, Theologians, Tragic Literature and Tragic Theory. And it's interesting, in your summary of exploring what tragedy is, you mentioned a number of Christian writers, including Dostoevsky and others. And I think you wrote once that theology and tragedy actually share, and I quote, areas of profound mutual concern which struck me as a fascinating thought. What, what are those areas of mutual concern where you find theology and tragedy kind of coming together? I mean, I think at the most fundamental level, what they share is a preoccupation with the relation between something like suffering and something like redemption, and, and perhaps even more broadly than that, therefore, between despair and hope as responses to, um, to that suffering. I think that they also share... This is my own sort of reading theologically of tragedy, but they also share a concern for what it is that we would, in a sense, rather not know about ourselves. That there is a sort of concern to reveal our obscured or overlooked fragilities or, or securities or patterns and structures of injustice. If we were to use the scriptures as a, a significant resource within Christian theology, do you see within particular scriptural passages or resources? stories or characters who illustrate for you this connection between theology and tragedy? One could start with Genesis, right, and thinking particularly of Genesis 3 and, and thinking of the, you know, many depictions of the banishing of Adam and Eve from, from Eden as a sort of iconically tragic image. You're thinking of the beginning of, of Milton's Paradise Lost, right, of man's first disobedience from where it, where it begins. And I would want to 
theologically to locate an account of tragedy within an understanding of the fall and fallenness. I think that that's, that's really important, that it's not something that is, as it were, original in creation itself, but it expresses a kind of fallenness. But then thinking sort of through the biblical canon, I mean, obviously one thinks of Job. I was actually involved rather joyously in uh, a mad production of Job using the Septuagint Greek as if it were a Greek tragedy to try and think through how these resonances work. Um, but then, of course, poetically, one thinks of the Psalms, especially Psalms of Lament, Book of Lamentations, Jeremiah, Isaiah. And I suppose that there are a number of particular narrative moments in the Old Testament that we might think of as having a sort of tragic character, and which are very often then turned into sacred tragedies, You know, particularly in the Renaissance. There's a, a sort of vogue for trying to rewrite um ancient pagan tragedy in a kind of the, uh, Christian Christian vein. And so there, obviously, we think of Saul, David and Jonathan, horrendous story of Jephthah and his daughter, which I've been writing about a bit. And then, of course, the Gospels, you know, the narrative of passion and crucifixion, but also, I think, peppered throughout the narratives of the Gospels. So thinking in John's Gospel, where the raising up of Jesus, the moment of glorification, is a cruel death on the cross. So there's this profound theology of the cross that runs through the gospel, or indeed to, to stay with John of, of Peter being told by the risen Jesus of his death that he will be led where he does not want to go. So there are there are lots of moments I think that can be identified as as having a certain kind of tragic resonance. I was struck by your description earlier, Giles, about tragedy is the mirror. Like that's my word, but it essentially shows back to us what we don't want to see. I'm struck by the the narrative episodes you use there. And just to go to David, for example, there's something about his narrative that shows us something about the heroes that we don't want to see. Is that a fair reading, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Those words, you are the man, right? As again, a sort of iconic moment of, in a sense, what it is we might theologically take tragedy to be doing, right? This, this sort of sudden and unexpected revelation of our... Well, in David's case, it's responsibility, I suppose, but perhaps in a kind of extended communal sense of our complicity, perhaps, in suffering and injustice. That's made all the more poignant and intense by the fact that we are complicit in the performance by enjoying it aesthetically as well, right? So this kind of perversity of tragedy, that's one of the things that it, that it shows us, I think. So yeah, absolutely that moment with, with David as a kind of parable, really. And if we're to read that correctly, we, we don't sit back vicariously say, you know, thank you, Lord, I'm not like David, but rather we're invited to say I could be like David. And that's my tragic place. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. You spoke earlier about the Psalms of Lament being perhaps one of the biblical resources that we have to think about tragedy. How do they make connections? What particular contribution do they make to, as we think about the world of the tragic? Yeah, it's very, very interesting, isn't it? I mean, I suppose the first thing to say is just quite how many of the Psalms are marked by lament, even those which are not as formally regarded as or categorised as, as Psalms of lament. And I think there, again, there's that sense of a real dwelling with suffering, with pain, with brokenness, with loss. And also something about, you know, thinking of the liturgical patterning of reading the Psalms, you know, that very often we'll be confronted with Psalms of lament often at moments when it's not that we are personally, as it were, particularly feeling this in this kind of emotional or existential or spiritual predicament, but nonetheless, it's a regular part of the church's liturgy. I was very struck by an earlier podcast um, that you had on the Psalms of Lament and the way that that in particular drew attention to the way that the Psalms of Lament 
tend always to be read as a kind of movement from lament to something like praise or joy or or hope and actually just how many of them resist that you mentioned earlier about the gospels being perhaps an example of the tragic you mentioned but what what does looking at the gospel narratives through the lens of tragedy what does that offer us in terms of seeing the life death resurrection of jesus perhaps with with new eyes with fresh insights that's a really interesting question and it's it's particularly interesting that that you began with life rather than going as it were straight to death and resurrection which i think is often where attempts to sort of read the gospels tragically go and and i say there that i've I've been very influenced by um, cambridge theologian donald mckinnon who was one of the figures who really sparked my theological interest in tragedy with whom i still continue to to wrestle he famously asked this brilliant counterfactual question what would christianity look like if it had grown in the soil not a greek philosophy but a greek tragedy and so he had a sort of tragic sensibility and that led him to read all of the gospels in the light of a kind of tragic understanding that i think brings really very fresh and quite searching insight into the narrative so you know we might think of the pathos of what we would call the raising of lazarus perhaps ought to be called the allowing of lazarus to die (laughs) and the kind of intervening period there that um, jesus wept or indeed um, donald mckinnon in particular had some brilliant sort of deconstructive readings really of the parables that really bring alive what a parable is, how it is a parable and it works, and which really works to kind of defamiliarise tidy notion we have of a sometimes rather sentimentalised or kind of moralising message of the parables. So he takes the parable, for example, of the Good Samaritan and says, well, what if we suppose that actually the Samaritan wasn't the best person in this story, but actually the priest and the Levite, you know, that, that if the Samaritan went to aid the wounded man but had dirty hands and used infected oil and the man's wounds got infected and then he died or even if that didn't happen and he takes him to the inn and then provides for him there's still a kind of pattern of dependence and of relation and of kind of power relations going on there that mean that we can't read this as a kind of straightforward narrative of heroic triumph shall we say through goodness right that there's a kind of deep complexity here now, they might be rather perverse readings of the parables. I think very often they are. He, he has a reading of the prodigal son where he asks us to imagine that the father in that narrative is not to be identified straightforwardly with God the Father, but actually with King Lear, foolishly preferring one child over another. So there's a playfulness, I think, in his, in his readings. But as a, as a way of opening up quite how challenging and open-ended, in a sense, parables are as a way of, of teaching. And as that as being something that one can one can get from a kind of attention to, to tragedy and to tragic aspects, I think is really very, very powerful. You mentioned earlier about the way in which tragedy is not simply an aesthetic. It's not simply something in, done in the, the world of arts, whether be it drama or novels or opera, but is also engaging with the news. It's, it's always like a reflection of reality. In what ways, therefore, might focusing on tragedy be particularly important for theologians and all of us in the church at the present moment? And I'm thinking particularly of this phrase I think you used where you suggest it gives us, and I think I quote, ears for the cries of our contemporary world. What's at stake for you in, in engaging with tragedy and the contemporary world? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think that's something which, you know, we can reflect on again in thinking about tragedy, not just as a text, but as a performance. Very often thinking of some recent productions of Greek tragedy, 
at the National Theatre, for example, has become quite quite common in productions of Shakespearean tragedy as well. To to put them in, you know, not simply contemporary dress, but in contemporary settings and locations that that call to mind how some of these dynamics are worked. So, you know, thinking of a very brilliant National Theatre production of Othello that was set in a military camp in Iraq. That I think there is always a kind of contemporaneity to tragedy, at least for us, for us as an audience, and so. One of the things that I think tragedy does in giving us is for the cries of our contemporary world is it bids us, first of all, to not look away from suffering, but also in our attention to suffering and our looking at suffering, to not be immobilized by it and to not despair at it either. And so it sort of puts us in this kind of intermediate position between uh, those two things. And I think the other thing that tragedy opens up for us ethically as well as theologically, and this is something that McKinnon develops to some extent, um, is something like a kind of tragic ethics that I think really speaks to the sense of the, the difficulties and predicaments being being human and particularly being human in, um, in the modern world. So we think of Hegel's reading of, of Sophocles' Antigone, where there's a fundamental conflict, not between right and wrong. It's not a morality tale where, where you simply know which one ought to win out but between two conflicting goods that, that are simply in contradiction or, or not, not wholly compatible. And I think that that relates to something that a lot of people feel in their everyday lives and perhaps in a kind of less dramatic, but nonetheless quite persistent level. You know, for example, the level of a kind of tension between you know, giving oneself fully to a vocation or a career and the demands of family. And there's something that tragedy recognises in the sort of confines and limits of our contingency and our finitude. That, that's really very important and, and so which gives I think an importantly humane quality shall we say to the kinds of judgments that we're being um, encouraged to make of, of others and of ourselves so I think that's one, another way in which tragedy can help us as it were live in our predicament um, which is to say that you know as Christians we live in a world that we know to be fundamentally the good creation of a loving God but at the same time to be all pervasively fallen and corrupted and how those two things are taken to be to be true and held in a tension which you know, we trust and pray will be resolved eschatologically, but which has not been fully resolved yet. And that's one of the things I think tragedy can point to. And, and that, I think, then speaks to the way in which tragedy draws a distinction or allows us to draw a distinction between optimism and hope, something that is really fundamental. And so as Thomas Hardy put it, who holds that if weighted the better there be, it exacts a full look at the worst. So that's to say that we're only able to hope for the best by confronting the worst and rather than looking away from it. So it helps in a sense to avoid a kind of cheap or easy optimism in the face of suffering, but also by making us continually aware, I think, of how liable we are to this kind of optimistic narrative, right? this sense that all the psalms of lament end in praise. Well, they don't. <laughs> And, and then even if they do, we go back and reread them um, you know, month on month, week on week. And so it makes us aware of how this kind of optimistic narrative can fail to do justice, I think, to the reality of suffering and, and failure and, and injustice. And in that respect, I think of tragedy as a kind of therapeutic work, of sort of slowly, as it were, healing us from something or weaning us off unhelpful, destructive, perverse ways of thinking and being in the world and and that that itself is profoundly theological i wonder therefore giles where this connects with your own walk of faith and how reflecting on tragedy has informed your worship your prayers 
your own discipleship and how that's touched and indeed continues to touch you? It's been remarked by some of my friends and some of my friends who are theologians that I'm a curiously upbeat and optimistic person for someone who spent so much time thinking and working on tragedy. So in some ways, I think I'm fairly well well equipped for, for, for dealing with it. But I've certainly found, you know, there are moments when one can, one can have too much tragedy. And, you know, even McKinnon writes about the, the temptation of, as he puts it, wallowing in the beastliness of things, is, is his phrase. So I think for all of this insistence that I want to place on the importance of, of an attention to, to difficulty, brokenness, failure, suffering, these, these sorts of things that tragedy makes us alert to, and, and all the more alert to the ways in which we continue to deny how those things are there and at work. You know, the Greeks... In their productions of tragedy, tragedies would be produced in a trilogy. So the uh, the, the Oresteia is um, a complete trilogy of, of plays, for example, Aeschylus, um, Oresteia. But then there'd be a fourth play that was the Satyr play, you know, that was a sort of festive, satirical, rather broadly comic kind of work. And that's something that I think, you know, you see in a sense in Shakespearean tragedy sort of collapsed into the drama itself, right? That you have the fool. In, in King Lear, there is always a kind of festival, comic, sometimes rather grotesque kind of element. So I think that allowing for that kind of variety is quite important. And I had several moments during my research where I realised that I was perhaps being a little bit too thoroughgoing in my attention to tragedy. I remember giving a paper up in St Andrews that was all about tragic hermeneutics and, and a reading of the theology of the cross and how sin is in a sense so it's this kind of self-obscuring thing so we can never know ourselves to be sinners and sin sort of hides itself under under forms of righteousness and we're just left then with a kind of stuckness as it were and actually this is where i again i come back to you use the word mirror earlier and i think in a sense tragedy is a mirror but it's also important that it's that it's not only a mirror but also to be glib a springboard right it's it's a way of moving beyond what it shows us. So it doesn't simply repeat failure and brokenness back to us in a way that leaves us stuck. It doesn't offer a kind of metaphysical consolation with the terrible facts of life, but actually provokes us into new forms of awareness and action. And I remember being asked by by someone after this paper, in what way do you think this is good news? And I realised I hadn't actually put it like that to myself. And that actually then caused me to completely rewrite my PhD on the basis of that and this feeding into the book. But I think that it is, it's fundamentally important to have a sense of how it is that tragedy is part of the good news that we receive. And if I could push you on that, what would be your brief summary of how tragedy is part of the good news? I suppose here I'd put it in rather Lutheran terms, right, that there is a dynamic interaction between what Luther calls law and gospel, right? And that the two, in a sense, come together. So for Luther, God's promise and God's judgment are, in a sense, the same thing, that we can never know ourselves to be sinners apart from the grace that redeems that sin. And that's very painful because we are being revealed to be sinners. You know, this, this leads, as Luther says, to a cry of despair, but it's a cry that for Luther is intertwined with the cries of creation for redemption and the cries of the spirit that are, that are too deep for words interceding on our behalf. So all of these things are, are simultaneous, really, for Luther and, and sort of mutually implicated in one another. And that's why I think of tragedy as a kind of theological form, right? that it's not simply a kind of nihilism or despair. 
right? It's something which is fundamentally creative. The, the way I put it in the book is that it, it's a creative staging of negation rather than simply, as it were, negation or a kind of negativity. So that's why I think that tragedy is, in a sense, always already secretly theological and why our theology has an element of tragedy in it. So I'd, I'd want to push back against notions of tragedy that insist that it's some kind of ontological nihilism or something like that. I think it's, that's a part of what it is to be creative and that, that's a part of what it is to be redeemed. It's to be made, made sinners in as much as we are, we are redeemed. That's a wonderful place in which to acknowledge not simply the theological uh, aspects of tragedy, but also the way in which tragedy itself is a uh, part of the narrative of the good news. Giles Waller, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmer Hall is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmerhall.com.